and welcome to MonarchCast. Again, we're here today talking royal families, monarchy, and all the fun stuff that goes along with that. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about the first Hanover King, George I, and the various reasons, more about the various reasons that he came to the throne and what that meant for the monarchy going forward and how a German family ended up ruling England. Um, But before we get into that, I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And Claire, do you have any royal gossip for us this time? I just have a little bit of information that I heard. Um, you know, it's it's war, it's royal wedding specific, as I think most of the gossip is these days. Um, but I thought it was kind of interesting. So I read that Meghan Markle's father is going to be getting a coat of arms, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of interesting that they're giving this coat of arms to a an American man who lives in Mexico um, and he's getting a British coat of arms but the reason behind it is because when Harry and Meghan get married they, they will have their own coat of arms and typically for a married couple you would show the blending of Harry's coat of arms with Meghan's coat of arms but Meghan can't have arms unless her father does which is a little crazy, I think. Well, I but think they did the same thing for Kate Middleton when she and William got married, right? They, like They did. Traditionally, yeah. it's kind of a gift that's given to the bride's father if the family doesn't already have a coat of arms, that they would make sure that there's one that exists. Yeah, they have to do it so that they can properly represent the union between the couple that's getting married. But I just thought it was really interesting that this random American man... <laughs> Out yeah, there is getting a coat of arms. I mean, I think it's funny because you know they did this for um, Kate Middleton's father too. But I think it was more like, oh yeah, of course. But now it's like, oh, they've essentially done some heraldry for a American citizen. <laughs> it's a little bit. Uh, I think that's, that just goes along with like the quirks of having an American join the royal family. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not that different in some circles, or it's probably not viewed all that differently than it was probably when Michael Middleton got a coat of arms because he's not a member of the aristocracy and, you know, was started as an airline pilot, I think. So in some circles, they're probably just as ticked as they would have been a few years ago. But I just thought that was really interesting that they couldn't just give Megan her own coat of arms. They had to give it to her father. Yeah, I was just thinking that, like, it wouldn't have surprised me if they had not done this because if they had come up with some reason of like, it's only done for Brit- British citizens or something. Um, and then they could have just created a new from scratch coat of arms um, for Harry and Meghan together. But I think it's more about like tradition and how they do things. And as we've covered, they're very into their traditions and the the meanings behind those. So it's a nice gesture. It's more surprising to me that they did this for someone who's family is causing a bunch of grief. (laughs) Yeah, and I guess, yeah, I also read that that's not going very well behind the scenes, but whatever. You (laughs) You can't control your family. No, you can't pick your relatives. That's all I've got, really. Um, You know, I haven't heard anything about the Spice Girls, but I'll keep you posted. (laughs) I I think I read that the Queen is going to skip that part. (laughs) If that, oh, yeah. if that were to happen. Um, I think otherwise, I think it's still baby watch, right? Like uh, Kate Middleton is now officially on uh, maternity leave. So yes. new yes. baby coming up this month. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think she's due at the end of the month, but who knows? I was reading something like, I guess the plan is she's going to try to go home the same day. I was like, well, I guess by your third baby, you're pretty much That's- like. That's what can, she like, did last time. Have the baby in the morning and like head out. I don't know. She, she did that last time. That's that was. Uh, I think she left the hospital like two hours after giving birth. It just seems so extreme to me. Yeah, but it's probably just so much easier. <laughs> yeah. Well, for security and and I'm sure they can set up some sort of like hospital situation at Kensington Palace if need be. Um, yeah, they've got everything they need. So I think it's probably just much easier for everyone involved to get the spectacle out of the way. Yeah. Okay, so I actually do have a little bit of royal oops for everyone this time, although maybe not so much an oops, but more of a clarification. Did we make a boo-boo? Well, we had a conversation that where we were both confused, and 
I think I, you know, postulated a theory about how it could be possible. And the more I thought about it, the more that just seemed like, you know, the answer was kind of staring us right in the face. And it's when we were talking about Edward VIII and his um, his position to the crown when he was born in that his father was the Duke of York and his grandfather was the Prince of Wales. And we were wondering, because like we're used to a situation now where like the father is the Prince of Wales and then... Um, like your uncle would be the Duke of York or something like that. But I, of course, this all depends on how many kids are in the family, like how long reigns happen, who dies, who lives, you know, it's, it's all inherited titles, right? Um, but actually the answer for that is extremely simple. So Edward VIII was born to King George V, who, um, at the time of Edward's birth was the Duke of York, but the reason he was the Duke of York um, is because his father was the son of Queen Victoria. So the eldest born son of Queen Victoria. So say Queen Victoria is the queen. Her eldest son, uh, who was Edward VII, is the Prince of Wales. And then his, so then his father, as the firstborn son of Edward is, or Albert Edward, which was his name, um, is the Duke of York. And so as Queen Victoria, I believe, was still alive when Edward was born, right? Um, all of these positions would have still been in place. And um, George V actually was the second son of Ed Edward, but his eldest son died. So he then became the Duke of York. So Victoria's second son was not the Duke of York. Correct. For whatever reason, I don't, I don't know. Did she have multiple? She must have had multiple sons. She had like ten kids. Yeah, don't um, quote me on the number, but she had a lot of children. I, and but I think it goes to because once the Prince of Wales has a son, then he would become. He maybe they hadn't bestowed the title because maybe it's the case of there was already a living Duke of York, and then um, by the time he died the Prince of Wales already had a son and they would give him the title. Because if you think about like Prince William, if you're following that sort of structure, would could be the Duke of York, except there's already a living Duke of York. So they're not going to just strip him of a title to give it to the heir, right? So if Prince Andrew died then perhaps before Charles became king, then William could conceivably become the Duke of York. Yeah, they might do that. I, they probably wouldn't because he's already the Duke of Cambridge. But if I think if he were to die and and then William would have been born, they would have called William the Duke of York. Got it. I feel like I might not have made this less confusing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we should do a rundown of titles. I think we really be should really because it, it is a whole like thing in that there is structure to it, but it's also entirely dependent on like who's holding this title like they're not going to just strip someone of their title because someone else is born you know they don't they don't seem to do that but anyway in that particular instance that is how the prince of wales became the grandfather to the duke of york or the the, the father. father yeah <laughs> yeah we're just as confused if anybody out there has a better explanation for how this works please drop us a line yeah we could clearly use the help. <laughs> we could. And and maybe it's the case, but also I'm guessing because, well, I would say because Victoria and Albert had so many children, perhaps they were far enough, like, different in age that, you know, by the time, because they also don't grant these, like, titles at birth, right? Like, they're give, you're invested with these titles. So perhaps by the time the Prince of Wales was old enough and having children, the Duke of York or the who would have been the Duke of York was still young enough that they aren't going to give him a title yet. I don't, I don't know. I, I felt like I solved this and now I've talked myself out of it. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be an ongoing theme of, uh, I don't understand this. Um, but anyway, I think that clarified that particular situation, maybe. Clear as a bell. Yep. <laughs> okay, but moving on to things that I feel slightly more comfortable talking about. Today, like I said, we are talking about George I, um, the first Hanoverian king of England. Um, and I originally going into the research for this episode thought I was going to do this great rundown of the bio of the, you know, first King George. But 
You know what? He took the throne when he was 54. So there's not a lot of his bio that happened while he was King of England. And actually the whole question of how he became King of England, I think is much more interesting. And it's more about what came before his rule, like all the way going back 200 years to Henry VIII and the act of supremacy to then the glorious revolution and the act of settlement. So I think today I'm going to focus more on those events in English history and then talk a little bit about the man who benefited the most from this. But he's not really the star of his own story. Aw, poor George. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is in that it's his life, but you know what? Like, in terms of like his... The bigger questions of how he became king of England, he's he's sort of like inconsequential. Like he just, you know, the luck of birth, I suppose. Okay, so getting into this, I think really the story here is like ever, from the time on of King Henry VIII, he really set a hard precedent to maintain when he so like essentially divorced the Catholic Church and installed himself and presumably all future monarchs as the head of the Church of England. And he did this through the Act of Supremacy in 1534, where he basically said that England was not going to recognize the authority of the Pope in Rome and the ruler of England was going to be the head of the church. And as we sort of discussed previously, and we should really do episodes on this to go more into it because he like, well, Claire, you said he's your favorite, right? Yeah. Because he really, I mean, this, his rule, because he was such an absolute monarch, really changed the course of um, the monarchy in England, as we will see. But he, you know, so he basically divorced the Catholic Church in order to divorce his wife, Catherine, and marry Anne Boleyn. But the bigger implication of that was he also removed England from all authority of the Pope. But he didn't necessarily change the religion of England all that much. Like, it was still what you would probably recognize as more Catholic based on, like, the traditions and the sacraments and everything that people were practicing. But they weren't Roman Catholic, However, we'll see, you know, like his descendants over the next 200 years, which was a pretty rough period for England, they sort of struggled with this question of how Catholic do we want to be? And, um, you know, in the 1500s in Europe, you've got concurrently happening the Reformation in starting in Germany and spreading outwards. And basically, after Henry VIII, England undergoes its own Reformation and the impact on the monarchy is pretty huge. So I thought what I would do is do a brief rundown of Henry VIII's descendants and talk about their relationship to religion and this seesaw that we see happen between Catholicism and Protestantism, which appears to be entirely based on the personal preferences of whoever's on the throne at the time. And so really when we're talking about Protestantism, though, we're talking about being allowed to read the Bible, right? We're talking about well, the introduction so that's, of the... Yes, um, essentially that was the, um, the like, if I'm trying to remember my Reformation history here. And there was this struggle of, like, how formal should worshiping religion be? Like, can you read the Bible in English? Can you... Um, do you have to give confession to a priest? Do you have to, like, um, is... What's the place of iconography and all of this stuff? Um, and... It went in waves. So like the early English Reformation was more, I mean, starting under Henry VIII was more about um, we're just not going to recognize the authority of the Pope. And then it became a question of, well, what do we want our traditions and sacraments to be? And of course, you had different factions of Protestants. You had Calvinists and Puritans, and they all had different ideas of what it meant to worship. Like the Calvinist doctrine was a little more pragmatic and down to earth. And the Puritans thought all sacraments were basically the devil's work. So, um, so for so for the purposes of our conversation, just to clarify for anybody who might be listening, really we're talking about Catholic under the authority of the Pope and everybody else. Essentially, yes, Essentially. because you will see there is an evolution of English Protestantism, you know, naturally over the hundred years. But you're right; that's a very simple way to think of it as like Catholic and everyone else. Okay, so we will start there. So. Uh, directly after Henry VIII, we have Edward VI, who was his only living uh, male heir and also England's first monarch to be raised a Protestant, um, as he would be given that um, he was born after his father had left the Catholic Church. And so, you know, 
Henry, to really reinforce his new religion, would insist that his son would be raised in this way, especially if he's going to be the future king of England, um, which is interesting considering his siblings were not necessarily raised in the same way. I mean, they all, they all, and we will get into this, but they all had very different childhoods based yes. on their mother, their mother and, was yeah. and what was happening in the country and how, how Henry thought of their mother. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, was your mother beheaded or was she sent off quietly into the night or, you know, held under house arrest? So like it's, and, and I think especially Edward being the male heir would have been given probably um, priority over all of this, right? Yes. And his mother was also Henry's favorite. So he yes. had that going for him as well. But yes. Yes. Um, so under his reign, and as him, him being a Protestant, um, the focus was on continuing the Church of England, and it became more recognizably Protestant during his reign. So Henry VIII, as I mentioned, basically renounced the authority of the Pope, but he had never allowed renunciation of Catholic doctrine or ceremony. So you're calling it, you know, the Church of England, and you're basically following Catholic tenants. You're just not recognizing the authority of someone else who could potentially tell you, no, you're not allowed to get a divorce. Um, that's essentially what it was. So Edward sort of continues Henry's transition and it becomes more Protestant and then he dies. And so the throne passes to his eldest sister, Mary, whose mother was Catherine of Aragon, Yes, who was Catholic. And so Mary was raised Catholic and Mary's in sole intention as queen was to reverse the English Reformation begun under Henry VIII. So she was aggressively anti-Protestant. She would have people killed and executed for their beliefs. And that's why they call her Bloody Mary. Um, She was not a well-loved queen, let's just put it that way. And it was based almost entirely on her religious persecution of those who weren't Catholic. So she dies and Elizabeth becomes queen. And now Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn, who was the cause of this separation from the Catholic Church, but also was beheaded from Henry the by Henry the Eighth and his lawyers. I don't. I, that's the whole story. Sorry. <laughs> hey, what, what did you say? Say that again. His lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking of Thomas Cromwell and like his whole um, part in the matter. But they weren't the ones wielding the axe. But she was. Let's just say she was beheaded, and we won't get into why. Um, so Elizabeth was raised Protestant as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and she basically came in and undid all of Mary's reforms. So we've got this, between these three siblings, we've got this seesaw between becoming more Protestant, reverting back to Catholic, and then Protestant again. So she, Elizabeth, reverts England back to Protestantism. And it's possible that she embraced this because the Pope had declared her illegitimate in 1570. So it was much easier for her to claim legitimacy under the law of the English church. So naturally she gravitates towards this church because they have no problem with her being on the throne. And I think it was also just looking back on all everything that had happened, it was probably much easier to just go on as they were rather than, you know, what Mary was trying to do was really difficult because you're a generation removed from the divorce from the Catholic Church. And it's really hard to then turn around and all of the abbeys that had been sacked, all of the monasteries. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and also with Mary, you know, she had to have drummed up a bit of anti-Catholic sentiment yes. in the country. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah some results of her reckless actions, I suppose. Um, Okay, so Elizabeth is succeeded by James I, um, who was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was Elizabeth's cousin. Um, So Elizabeth dies with no heirs, and the throne reverts to James I, and this is the beginning of the Stuart line. And so James arguably did quite a bit to advance Protestantism in England. I think we've all heard of the King James Bible, Um, He is the James in question because he sponsored the translation of the Bible into English, which was a huge um, part of, as Claire, as you mentioned before, of Protestantism, this belief that you should be able to worship in your native tongue and not Latin. And now was James a Protestant or would he have been a Catholic as a Scottish ruler? So he was Protestant. Okay. And actually, so... convert to take the throne? No, The rulers in Scotland at the time were mostly Protestant. Okay. Yep. And in fact, I believe that might have been some of the reasons 
um, his parents were so vilified in Scotland because, well, other reasons too. But I, I'm, sus- I'm suspecting they were Catholic and part of that was it. I, you know, didn't delve too much into Mary, Queen of Scots story on this, but James was Protestant. Um, he also, though, sanctioned some strict measures against Catholics during his rule because um, he was the, or he and his regime were the victims of a few uh, Catholic plots, most notably the gunpowder plot, which is where Guy Fawkes wanted to blow up Parliament. Got it. Yep. This is sort of Catholics coming back against the Protestants, you know, with um, probably tired of this anti-Catholic sentiment, but not really doing themselves any favors, right? Like, come on, guys, like terrorism, never the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't make anybody sympathize with your cause. Um, Okay, so James's heir was Charles I, um, who was his son. But also, as we talked about in one of our previous royal oops, Charles got beheaded. Um, and it's entirely possible that religious tensions are um, contributed to the political tensions that led to the overthrow of the monarchy, um, because you've got a lot of Protestant factions in this time, and a lot of larger picture um, Catholic Protestant tensions throughout Europe. So we, this is the time of the Thirty Years' War, which was a truly devastating war between Protestants and Catholics fought in on the continent in Europe. I think primarily, I might be wrong about this, but I think primarily in France and Germany. Um, but Puritans didn't approve of the direction that Charles was taking the Church of England. And then other Protestant factions were unhappy thinking that he didn't really do enough to stop Catholic forces during the Thirty Years' War. And he um, also pursued diplomacy with Spain, which was a Catholic country. And so a lot of these stances that he took on religion probably contributed to the political tensions that led to the overthrow of the monarchy. I mean, there were bigger picture, like political questions probably as well, but religion certainly didn't help. So he's beheaded. And in the meantime, we've got the English Civil War and we've got a brief republic government and Oliver Cromwell's dictatorship. Um, And none of that went very well. So eventually we have the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II, who was the son of Charles I and had been living in exile, but he's brought back into England to restore the monarchy. And now he actually was pretty tolerant. He believed in um, religious tolerance of both Catholics and Protestants, but uh, unfortunately, Parliament by this time had developed some pretty anti-Catholic sentiment, probably because Catholics had tried to blow up the place where they work, but probably <laughs> because of other reasons as well. So Charles II, even though he likely had pretty Catholic leanings and in fact did convert to Catholicism on his deathbed, he knew that openly being Catholic while on the throne was dangerous. And so he didn't really do a whole lot in either direction other than kind of say, hey, can't we all just get along? Um, Parliament, meanwhile, is trying to pass the Exclusion Act to prevent his brother James from becoming king. That doesn't work, and James becomes king. So we have a pretty openly Catholic king on the throne of England. It's kind of easy, actually, for him to gain the throne despite all this anti-Catholic sentiment, but probably there was a little bit of misunderstanding on both sides. So um, there's this great documentary um, by David Starkey that aired on, I believe, the BBC and PBS a few years ago. And in his episode on James II, he's basically talking about how James gives this speech in front of Parliament, you know, saying that he's going to be a good king and, you know, his religion is like important to him, but like basically he's going to just rule as if like the religious question isn't a thing. But the, the counselors thought he's saying, I'm just going to rule as an Anglican. And Charles is thinking that they just don't care what his religion is. But Charles also thought that his ability, I'm sorry. Yes. Thank you. James thought that his ability to take the throne was a sign from God that he should spread the word of Catholicism. So (laughs) he decided he was going to spread the good word. (laughs) And um, (laughs) it didn't go well. And also um, 
in pursuit of this, he became a bit too enamored of the idea of absolute monarchy. So he really looked up to um, Louis XIV and his his vision of how monarchy went, because France at the time is both Catholic, but also totally under control of Louis XIV. He doesn't have to deal with the parliament. He doesn't have to deal with, you know, any of these questions. And and Charles, you know, kind of admired that, and he wasn't too discreet about it. So after he produced a Catholic heir, parliament decided, you know what, we, we got to do something about this because we're in very real danger of continuing this Catholic succession, and we just don't like it. So this is the guy we were talking about when we were talking about Queen Anne, right? Because yes, she and her sister her... were raised Protestant because their was it their uncle who insisted that they be raised? Yes, Protestant? so yeah. Well, I believe it was Charles II, even though he converted to Catholicism on his deathbed, he was I mean, he was more pragmatic about this. He recognized the danger of being Catholic and ruling. So he had Mary and Anne raised Protestant, but his brother had already converted to Catholicism. Okay. Um, so at this point, we get the Glorious Revolution, which drives James II off the throne in favor of his Protestant daughter, Mary, and her husband, William, but ensuring a Protestant succession to the throne. Um, and James II was, in fact, the last Roman Catholic monarch of England, Scotland, and Ireland. But let's talk about the Glorious Revolution, or I like to think of it as that time Holland conquered England. (laughs) So, you know, like I said, um, Parliament is like panicking after um, Charles... Charles's wife produces an heir who would presumably be raised Catholic as both... I'm sorry, James. Wow, this is... (laughs) We are talking about James II. Okay. After his wife produces a boy and his wife is Catholic, he's Catholic, so there's no reason to think this baby is not going to be raised Catholic. Parliament is kind of panicking a little bit. But at the same time, you have a desire from some of the Protestant rulers in Europe to really stem this Catholic tide. Um, Notably, William of Orange, who was ruling in the Netherlands, um, who was also a first cousin of Mary and Anne, is looking at this happening and he's thinking, hey, let's unite a Protestant Netherlands and England against the threat of France and Louis XIV. And kind of like just solidify this Protestant um, presence on the throne, but we've got both the bulk and armies of England and the Netherlands to do it. And, you know, he's got a clear path to that. He's married to Mary, and Parliament would much rather her uh, family inherit the uh, succession than their half-brother. So William makes his plans to invade, and basically Parliament's like, come on in. (laughs) so and the public was pretty into this as well i mean william lands in england to cheering crowds you know um like i said the public sentiment and the government sentiment was pretty anti-catholic at the time so Um, it's not really so much an invasion as they threw the doors open yeah i mean it's an invasion in that you have the navy of another country coming in and there was a essentially a battlefield but James II didn't really do himself any favors by fleeing the battlefield, um, which basically meant that his armies were like, well, we're not going to give down our lives for you if you're just going to leave. So he really made it easy for William to invade, and ostensibly the shield for all of this was, well, we're just conducting negotiations. Um, But James flees to France with his family, and the way is made clear for... um, the Glorious Revolution. And I also want to bring up this really interesting thing that happened where right after this heir is born, um, I don't, his name is like James Edward Stewart, something like that. He would have been James the third. He's the, and he's the father of Charles Stewart, Bonnie Prince Charlie. Okay. Um, yeah. If you want to get a sense of where he falls in that. When he was born, Anne became convinced that he was a changeling because his mother had had public difficulty conceiving and caring children. And so when she produces a healthy heir, everybody's like, oh, yay. And Anne's thinking, hang on a second. Like, that's so, not, so something's off. So this is off. not the mother of Anne and Mary? No, this is their stepmother. Okay. Yes. So Anne comes becomes convinced that he's a changeling and she somehow convinces Mary that this is the case as well. And William was like, sure, I'll believe this because it's a good pretense to come in and invade. You know, I'll just add it to the rest of the list of reasons, you know, why I I want to do this. I read somewhere that 
this was sort of her plan all along was to kind of spread this idea that this was not a true-born heir. And so she actually refused to attend his birth. Yes. So that she wouldn't be called upon to swear that the baby came out of the wife of the king. Right. And then she can tell everybody that the baby was smuggled in in a bedpan, which like, is what she did. Right. Yeah. So I don't know Pretty if easy she to was claim con- that if you- convinced of this or this was just the story she concocted to help with the transition. Right. Probably deep down she knew that wasn't the case, but she was happy to tell everyone that it was. Just to add more doubt around this guy, this little poor little innocent baby, honestly, um, until he grew up. But... <laughs> Um, okay, so we have William coming in, and obviously this revolution is successful. So William and Mary are installed on the throne as Mary II and William III, and they're reliably Protestant. Their children are probably going to be reliably Protestant, and all seems well, except for the part where they don't have any children. Oops. So, yep. So then that passes to Anne, and Guess who also didn't have any living children? Yeah, I think we talked about this before. She had 13 pregnancies. More like 17. Seven, okay, 17 like pregnancies. Like a crazy number of pregnancies. And she did have a male heir, but he died when he was 11. Oh, bummer. Yeah, so she doesn't produce a living heir. So, you know, this revolution has happened. Oh, and I want to mention that after the revolution, um, the line of succession was formally determined by something called the Declaration of Rights in 1689, um, which essentially declared that James II had abdicated by fleeing the country, and therefore the succession would formally go to his daughter Mary and William, and then their descendants after that. It basically was the act that legalized the invasion and made William and Mary essentially elected monarchs. Um, And this is sort of the first beginnings of constitutional monarchy in England, right? Parliament is having a heavy hand in deciding who's on the throne and they're exercising their displeasure at who's born into this role. And it's just a, a really big shift for the monarchy. But like I said, William and Mary, nor Anne, none of them produced a living heir. So the question becomes, who is the next available Protestant who can rule? Because we're certainly not going to let a Catholic come on the throne after all of this mess, right? Like, that just, like, kind of makes this revolution all for naught. Because Louis XIV is still living through this entire thing, and Spain still has Catholics on the throne, and and they're viewing this as a very real threat. Like, whether it was or not, you know, tensions between Protestants and Catholics at this time were really heavy. So why did it have to be a Protestant? Because we're talking about the Glorious Revolution and the Declaration of Rights. Once it became apparent that William and Mary were not going to produce an heir and Anne was going to be next in line, Parliament had to formalize, well, where is the succession going to go from here? And enter the Act of Settlement in 1701. This settled the succession only on Protestants, and now anyone who became a Roman Catholic or married one was disqualified from the throne. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is still the case. You know, I I wonder if in today's world, like, say, if Charles had married a Catholic, they would kind of be like, no, eh, I think... But probably they would make them convert. Yes, I think yeah. that it is still the case that... Yeah. You cannot hold the throne of England and be married to a Catholic. Right. And this is sort of the formalization of that idea, um, was the act of settlement. So but, but this is all because, so the Bill of Rights essentially said the same thing, that it, the ruler should be Protestant, but it didn't specify who would rule after Anne. So the act of settlement is coming in and filling in that gap. And in this, in the course of this act, they kind of go through the family tree and they're looking okay well this person oh this person's close in the line of succession nope they're catholic this person nope they're catholic and it's and not go, just people that are catholic it's right it's also the people that might be or that married catholics yes. and therefore might produce heirs that lean catholic yes i mean they're really thinking this through right it's not just the the descendants it's whoever they married because you can't have any risk that the succession line is going to turn catholic at some point So the most reliably Protestant successor they can find is 51 places down the line, Sophia of Hanover, um, who was a granddaughter of James I. Um, She was actually, in fact, the most junior member of the succession of Stuarts. 
So she's a steward by birth, but she's the most, and if you're going by um, primogeniture, right, which is like that your date of birth determines your order of succession, um, she's the most junior member of this entire line. But her family were all Protestants. Mm. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> we have a winner. <laughs> So the Act of Settlement decided formally that she would be the heir to the throne and that it would pass to all of her non-Catholic descendants. An interesting note also about the Act of Settlement that I want to point out is that it also um, lessened the power of foreigners in British government and the power of the monarch over parliament. And this was due probably almost exclusively to William's invasion and his subsequent partiality to foreign favorites and this sense that foreigners were maybe having a little bit too much to do with English government. And the fact that he continued to rule after his wife died. And yes, it was her but, claim. But I want to point out the irony of this because the very act that settles the, the succession on Sophia of Hanover and her descendants, who are German, is also an act that basically says well, foreigners can't come in here and, and rule. Except the Protestant one. <laughs> or except if you're in the royal line, right? right? But it's excluding foreigners and at the same time settling the succession on a German family. So it's a bit ironic, I think. Also notable is that this act also played a part in uniting the kingdoms of England and Scotland, which is where the Stuart family line was from originally. Which, it's kind of another story, but it, this was part of the deal that they used to get the Scots on board with settling the succession on the Hanovers. Okay, so now we've gone all the way down to Sophia of Hanover, but Sophia of Hanover actually died a couple months before Queen Anne. Sophia, come on. Well, she was like 83 or <laughs> oh, something like was? this. Oh, she was? I mean, she was old. When and, you said and actually, junior member, I'm picturing like a 13-year-old girl. Oh, well, okay, so I should specify that she died several years after the act of settlement. Okay. Um, but by the time Anne, but Anne also lived to be fairly advanced in years. Um, but Sophia of Hanover, unfortunately, um, ran for cover during a thunderstorm and collapsed and died. Um, that's how she died. That's a kind of interesting story. Wow. Um, but she she did this before Queen Anne. So by the time Anne is dead and they're looking all the way down the line for the next Protestant who can rule, her eldest son is the one that they settle on. And like I said, there are 51 places ahead of him, essentially, in the line of succession, all disqualified because of their Catholic ties. I mean, that's 50 people that got passed over for the throne. I, I honestly, like, can't go over that. Like, they were so adamant that it had to be a Protestant that they passed over 50 people. It's like 50 sliding doors. I know. Like, imagine the direction they could have gone. So um, we've got uh, Georg Ludwig, Elector of Hanover, who I think from now on we have to refer to as George Louis. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, we had to anglicize his name a little bit. Um, because for most of his 54 years prior to becoming king of England, he was known as Georg Ludwig. Because, like I've said many times, he wasn't even English. He was German. So this is the introduction of the House of Hanover and the German takeover of the English throne. Except it was, a, again, like William, and or William of Orange, a Dutchman, coming and ruling the throne. It was a welcome takeover. <laughs> Um, I, I just have to laugh at this point. Like the British people in Parliament were, or Parliament more so than the people probably, were just like, okay, well, <laughs> we're going to go get someone from a whole other country to rule because we don't want the people we've got. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about George I. Um, he wasn't really on the throne for that long because, like I've said before, he was 54 when he ascended the throne in 1714. Not exactly a spring chicken, um, at the time, that was a pretty advanced age. You know, people aren't really living that much past 60 or 70. Um, and despite knowing for a good number of years of his life that he would inherit the English crown, he didn't really speak English. So not only do you have this German prince coming to take over the English throne, but he can't even understand what's happening. Like he barely understood what was going on in the coronation ceremony. He couldn't speak directly to his ministers. Um, it's kind of an interesting conundrum. Now, I do want to point out that English was his fourth language, so we could probably cut him a little bit of slack. And English is um, a very hard language to learn. It is. It's, I think, grammatically, like, 
he wouldn't have had a huge difficulty knowing German, but, um, yeah, he, he only had a few words of broken English and it, there's kind of conflicting sources about this. Like some sources say that, um, he never really learned more than a few, um, words of like very broken English and like others were saying that he's like writing it fluently by the end of his life. So regardless, he definitely publicly had, a predisposition towards trying to find the person in the room who could speak French. So like I said, he's Protestant. So this is the most important thing because, you know, we're coming off of the reign of Queen Anne, but before her, um, we have William ruling as after Queen Mary dies, he's ruling on his own and he's essentially a Dutchman ruling the English throne. And so people are getting a little bit xenophobic at this point, right? Like they're kind of tired of, you know, these foreigners coming in and, um, you know, bestowing favoritism on their own people. And it doesn't really seem like the English are really getting the up and up, right? So even though he's coming in and he's welcome as king, he was kind of mercilessly mocked by some of the people. I think they called him a turnip head. And uh-huh. yeah, you know, well, because I guess turnips are like a German vegetable. I don't, I don't know. Um, so he was mocked a little bit when he first rose to the crown, but ultimately no one cared because he was Protestant, right? So he's German, he's a foreigner, and all of that gets trumped by his choice of religion. So when he became king of England, that didn't mean that he stopped ruling his own territories in Germany. So he was concurrently the king of England and the ruler of the, is it duchy? Am I saying that right? Yeah, I think it's duchy. It's not dookie. I think it's duchy. Okay. I'm I'm just you... going to throw that out there and please correct us if we're wrong. I have always <laughs> personally pronounced it as duchy. So. I have too, but now it's making me think of that song like past the duchy. <laughs> oh, no. I think this is a little different kind of duchy. Yeah. Um so he was concurrently king of England and the ruler of the duchy and electorate of Brunswick Luneburg, which was essentially Hanover okay. or what came to be known as Hanover. And Hanover was actually kind of small potatoes, but you know, he, his father had built it up into the center of arts and culture. And so it, it wasn't nothing that he was ruling that, but, but he did make quite the social leap by becoming the King of England. The Germans did have a knack for doing that. We will probably get to this at some point, but I would like to point out that I believe what's, who's the Russian empress? Alexandra? No, Catherine. Oh, Catherine. Great. I believe started life as a German princess. Yes. I think that might be correct. And became the Empress of Russia. So there you go. Yeah. Well, her husband was basically useless, so (laughs) she married well, I suppose. Um, And I want to point out what an electorate is basically just meant that his family also had over time um, with the right social influence and money, gifts, and all of this had gained the ability to um, be considered electors, which meant they were sort of part of an electoral college that would elect the um, the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire. Oh. Um, which was usually a foregone conclusion because I think traditionally it went to the Habsburgs, but it Can was a formal that title. Protestant? At that point, the Holy Roman Empire was Protestant. What? Yep. Okay, we're going to come back to that. That's really interesting. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, because think about it. I mean, this is the after effects of the Reformation, right? Before the Reformation, everybody was Catholic. And then afterwards, it was just like all hell broke loose. At this point, the Holy Roman Empire was, I think, controlled by Protestants. So that's actually a pretty big deal in the lands controlled and um, by the Holy Roman Empire, which died out by about the 1800s. So this is kind of in the final days of it anyway. But the lands that he had in Hanover, he had inherited from his father and uncles. Um, it's kind of interesting. The family had, the Germans were sort of really bad about having a lot of sons and dividing up all of their lands between their sons. So they sort of diminished family holdings over time. So his father and his uncles had a plan that they wanted to sort of reconsolidate the family holdings. So um, his father already had uh, a son, I believe, but his two uncles agreed to never marry so that they wouldn't have heirs. Um, I think one, or he had three uncles. One of them died, you know, and hadn't married, but two of them actually got married. One of them died without any heirs, but the other one actually married his mistress and legitimized their daughter, who 
because she was a woman, most of his lands would go to Georg anyway, but he married his cousin for whatever would pass to her and that would be lost through, you know, the rules of inheritance. And they also had adopted primogeniture, which meant that George inherited everything and his brother got nothing. <laughs> um, but that's how the family consolidated what would then become the lands that were Hanover, I suppose. Um, it's not just Hanover. It was like not just the city of Hanover, but the areas around it as well. Right. It was more of a province, I guess yeah. we could call it. And this marriage was pretty catastrophic. He had two children with her, one of whom was George II. Um, but she was sort of caught having an affair with a Swedish courtier. And so he divorced her and basically colluded with her father to have her put under house arrest until she died. And she never saw her children ever again. It's pretty tragic, but this all happened before he became king of England. So by the time he's, uh, you know, landing on the shores of England, he's bringing along his mistress. So, gotcha. um, yeah, he, he, and, but, but. This marriage did produce, you know, his heir, so notable for that. Um, he is the last English monarch to be buried outside of England, mostly because he died of a stroke on the way to Hanover. Because, like I said, he concurrently ruled Hanover and England, he spent a significant amount of his reign in Hanover. He loved to go there to hunt. He was His heart arguably remained in Germany for his entire life. And so one provision of the Act of Settlement was that the monarch could not travel outside of England without Parliament's permission, which he repeatedly ignored until eventually he had them repeal that provision because they were like, well, this is the king and we want to keep him because he's a Protestant, but he likes to spend a good portion of the year in Germany. Well, we'll just kind of let him do that because the other upside to this was this is where we basically have the completion of the shift to a constitutional monarchy because with the king being gone so often parliament was sort of left to their own devices and they could make decisions and pass laws without any intervention from the king um, so by the end of his rule um, significant power was held by uh, this man Robert Walpole who is widely considered Britain's first de facto prime minister interesting yeah. So I would say George I's reign is mostly significant because of the way he became king, but also under his rule, England shifts to sort of this modern monarchy that we know today. Um, also, his reign was pretty marked by tension between himself and his heir. The Hanovers were known to have issues between fathers and sons, Um you know, the fathers didn't like looking at their heir all the time and, you know, thinking about how they were going to one day die and this person was going to become king. And usually they didn't, didn't get along very well. When he would go away to Hanover, George wouldn't leave the Prince of Wales in charge, which is normally what would happen. But he, you know, very meanly would sort of like he took advantage of existing laws to kind of circumvent that. And um, they had sort of two dueling courts that would, you know, like if um, people were kind of angry at the king at the time, they could go and party with King George or Prince George. And um, it was kind of really just family dysfunction to the max. Sounds like they fit right in. Yeah. And but this, you know, he's the first George and then he's followed by George II and George III and George IV and all lined down the line to the Georges. Um broken up by Victoria. So um, that's King George. You know, in doing the research for this, I, I kind of realized as he came to the throne so late in his life, if we're talking about him as a king of England, I think the far more interesting story about him is how he even became king of England in the first place. Oh, 100%. I mean, it's crazy to think, you know, everybody knows, okay, Henry VIII divorced the Catholic Church. And I think for most people, if you haven't read any more about it, you just kind of assume that that's when they became Protestant. Well, and like, and that that's the end of it, no big deal. But right. like, I think people sometimes, well, I think if you even tell a lot of people that England had a civil war, they're kind of like, what? You know, like they don't really know that much about it. And so there's this whole 200 years after Henry VIII that a lot of like, you know, a lot of stuff went down. Yeah, I mean, it's a rough transition, and it's funny that ping-ponging, ping-ponging, and then they just finally say, okay, we're going to be Protestant. And then yeah. the hoops that they have to jump through to make that happen 
Well, and it's it's so interesting too because not only did he ignite this sort of religious war within England, um, and I'm talking about Henry VIII, but he also arguably set off the direction of the eventual overthrow of the monarchy and you know the civil war and all of that because Henry VIII was probably of all the kings of England ever the most despotic, the the most absolute monarch that England ever had, and so you have to imagine that. By just making it so that his will is law and, you know, bringing reformation to England and, you know, his problems of succession and all of that, you know, Parliament and the ministers are probably getting a little tired of having their lives totally upended every 10 years because one man had to, like, do his whims, you know? Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you look at what they did. You know, they go 51 places down the line and they landed on a dynasty, for lack of a better word, that's able to perpetuate itself for the long haul. Yeah. I mean, we're still looking at the direct descendants of George I on the throne of England. Yes. You know, their name has been through a couple more iterations, Mm -hmm. but Queen Elizabeth is the whatever great, 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 great something, something, (laughs) you know, she's, she's, she's directly descended. So, Mm. and you know, and when I say directly descended, we've got a couple like uncles in there and, you know, but essentially it's the the same family line, but it's the same family line. Yeah. I mean, cause that was the last time anybody had to go and hunt for another king to put on the throne because that's what Elizabeth had to do. She didn't have an heir. So she went to the nearest relation she had who was a member of the house of Stuart, not the house of Tudor mm-hmm. and then the Stuarts die out and then they go and they find the Hanovers and that line has continued into modern day well, which is pretty pretty uh fantastic if you just look at the history of the English monarchy and let's be clear the Stuarts didn't die out they were pushed aside <laughs> because of their religious beliefs sure yeah. sure if Anne um, had had a living heir. Then, then the Stuart line would have continued, yeah. yes. Um, but also, this is interesting because we were talking about, um, briefly before, about how the family changed their name to Windsor during World War One, mm-hmm. um, And this is the beginning of the family's Germanness, right? Like, this is, I mean, they had a different family name at the time that was equally as German, but this is the beginning of the family line coming from Germany. So, you know, like I said, we've got the Georges, and then we've got Victoria, and so they're all very English at this point, but descended from these Germans. And then Victoria marries a German cousin, who I believe that family line was also related to George I as well. Um, So they're all intermarrying. I mean, I also, (laughs) it sounds like this crazy thing that like the English and the Dutch were all getting all up in arms about the French and the Spanish. And it's like, why do they care? But if you really look at it, from more of a bird's eye view, it's just one giant family squabble. Like they're all first cousins and, you know, so-and-so second cousin and related. And it's like, they all have to care about what everybody else is doing because presumably down the line, because at the time, you know, royalty's marrying royalty, you're going to be sending descendants off to marry some of these people, right? And it's the first time too. I mean, that's exactly what they were doing. And, and when, you do things like exclude an entire religion, your options get a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny too, because it's like the first time that the Germans really rose to prominence, you know, like the Germans, I felt like were always kind of this forgotten land of small duchies and, you know, minor princes. And they did, they weren't really solidified under one major ruler. Mm-hmm. And then, you start to see with the when the religion comes into play, you know, Henry VIII did that. By the time he was on his fourth wife, he had to go find a German princess and or, you know, whatever her title was at the time. And you're not seeing France and Spain doing that obvious for obvious reasons, but it kind of opened the door to this German rise to power that maybe arguably directly led to the events we were talking about last week. Well, it certainly led to that family, yes. Right. Yeah, so, I mean... This is kind of the beginning of the modern British or modern British monarchy. Um, you know, by the time we get to George III, they're fully English. George is raised entire. George III is raised entirely in England. Um, George II spoke English well, but he had a heavy accent. Um, so they're taking a couple generations to sort of 
become more fully English. But again, I mean, this is the beginning of that. And I think it's important to point out at this time, you know, I, I mean, I, I keep going back to Henry VIII and he, he really started a chain of events that we're now seeing the, in this story, now seeing the, the full after effects of 200 years later. But Europe as a whole was kind of a mess at this time. And it's naturally affecting all the different monarchies. Everybody's vying for power and religion is playing a huge role in it. You know, I mean, the, the 30 years war cannot be understated. It was really traumatic for all of Europe. I mean, I think you and I have studied it a bit, um, in school and, you know, it was a really hard time for a lot of people and, and it was fought over religions. And so naturally it trickles up through the, the various centers of power and it becomes this greater maneuvering for control as well. Yeah. And you, and you can see the direct effect of that as you just, like we just talked about the decrease of concentration of power on the monarchy. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, a lot of that has to do with George the first's personal preferences, not wanting to rule his own country, but but you could argue that he just completed the shift because yeah. I mean, basically by installing William and Mary on the throne, Parliament has already begun this process, right? right. Like they've told the king, "We, we don't want power you from you." Yeah, and and and, and it's. I mean, also a bit of a learning curve, you know, instead of beheading him, they just told him to go. It's kind of a step in the right direction. Um, But I think that's because there was a lot of trauma after they beheaded Charles I. You know, there were a lot of people who thought that was taking it a little too far. Um, You could argue the country had a bit of PTSD after that. So at least they've learned a thing or two. You know, you might not agree with James's religion, but it doesn't mean you have to kill him. Right. I mean, to be fair, they didn't do that with him, so that's the, like you say, yeah. step up. But but they did tell him, you will not be king. Yeah. And I think that's the end of the well, and divine I think, right of kings, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. It's that idea that you, just because you're born to be a king doesn't mean we're going to let that happen. Right, and that's also this push-pull that's happening is the divine right of king versus um, parliament's ability or the people's ability to say, like, instead of God telling you you're supposed to be king, the people kind of have to agree to it as well. It's sort of a, um, not a secularization so much because the monarchy is still very much steeped in, you know, especially in England, like the head of the church and all of that, but it is bringing it down to earth a little bit. Also, you know, like I said, James II fled to France, but he did come back once to try to, you know, once William and Mary were on the throne, he, he did have a minor invasion that he didn't successfully pull off. And then his son, James Edward Stuart, also tried this as well, and it didn't go well. And this this family, the Stuart, continue, the Stuart family continuing to try to earn their way back into England culminates with uh, Charles III, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and who, as we mentioned, is the outlander, <laughs> the outlander right. guy. Um, but you have the Jacobites, you know, trying this entire time to reinstall what, who they believe is the rightful heir but ultimately they were unsuccessful. But but a lot of that too, I mean, if you, going back to Outlander, you know, Jacobite, the Jacobite movement had a lot of legs in Scotland because the Stuarts had been Scottish kings um, for a long time. So they weren't, as much as the government of Scotland agreed to unify with England, the people were maybe not as on board. Again, history is just this magic thing that, you know, you just keep seeing the ripple effects hundreds and hundreds of years later. Yeah. And we'll we'll talk about this again. I mean, I think we want to talk soon about, um, you know, this shift of the Windsors during World War II to sort of um, bury the Germanness under the rug a bit. And so we're still seeing the effects of this even, uh, you know, 100 years later. Well, I thought that was pretty good. I did not know a lot of that. It's a I messy always, time in I English always, history. I, it's kind of this period that previously I had always sort of skimmed over you know like I I think I had always sort of just assumed that they went to the Germans because they didn't have anyone else I didn't know there were 51 other possibilities before they got there so that's kind of fascinating well you don't have anyone if you're going by the rules that you've set for yourself but yeah essentially yeah I mean sure there were plenty of other people that they could they could go to but they couldn't guarantee that their descendants wouldn't be catholic so no papists need apply (laughs) (laughs) so i want to maybe just briefly mention a few of the sources that i uh went to for this episode i mentioned the david starkey series which 
I love it. It's, it's a very good, concise sort of summary of each individual monarch. And I think um, he does a really good job of breaking down sort of the important themes and elements of their rules. George I and George II get lumped together quite a bit because, like I've been saying, George I's rule wasn't really that long. Um, and it kind of bled into his son a little bit. Um, but I also read another of those penguin uh, monarchy books. Um, this one was called The Lucky King because um, George was just considered to be extremely lucky that the kingdom of England basically fell in his lap. And I also watched a bit of another documentary that I don't remember the name of. It might be called The First Georgians, I believe. Okay. Um, another BBC one as well. So I'll put those in the show notes um, if anyone is interested. And so what are we what are we doing next? Is that going to be our wedding special? It may be or we might be talking about the Windsors. I'm not sure. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> surprise. We'll surprise everyone. But until then, I will talk to you later. Or, right. oh, I'm sorry. Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs> Auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>